0: This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest
1: we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, cause I can Welcome once again, everyone, to Evidence for Faith. Hello, I'm Keith Hendricks. This is Kirk Hastings. And we are together again to explain to everyone the benefits of Christianity, Christian happiness, and human flourishing. You can check us out on evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. Well, Kirk, how are things going?
0: Uh, we haven't had any snow recently, at least not any laying on the ground. That's yeah. good news, oh, I guess.
1: So there. Oh well, Hamilton is still pretty white. Oh covered really? Up quite a bit of snow. So
0: we have a few snowdrifts here and there, but nothing major.
1: Okay. Do anything interesting uh, this week?
0: No, actually, it's been one of those busy but boring weeks.
1: Okay. Well, Dr. Mike and I went to a fundraiser last night in Philadelphia. That was a lot of fun. It's for the Academy of Music, and we got to see Paul Simon in concert with the Philadelphia Orchestra backing him up. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And then Nancy and I got to go dancing, so we had a really good time. So I got, oh, maybe five hours of sleep last night.
0: Oh, well, that's not too bad. Gee, the most exciting thing I did in the past week was take my pet cat to the vet.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. All right. You, well, your turn is coming up, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> this is my highlight of the week here, so make it good.
1: There you go. There you <laughs> go. Well, I think it's going to be great because today we're going to be talking about critical thinking skills and logical fallacies and those kinds of things because of a study that we'll get into later about. How, how well college kids are doing in college learning critical thinking skills.
0: Oh, sounds good.
1: Yep. First, though, let's do a couple of news items. I like the information that comes from Chuck Colson on his Breakpoint blog, so I pulled a couple of items from that. One is about the high cost of extramarital coupling. Now, one of the purposes of this show is to show the social benefits that the Christian worldview brings to people who adopt it and to countries and nations that adopt the Christian worldview. So I thought this was particularly pertinent. It says in a recent column, marriage expert Mike McManus explores the high cost of out of wedlock sex. For instance, over 7 million American couples live together four out of five of those couples will break up without ever tying the knot. Hmm. But, but McManus writes, if they've had a baby, many of these mothers and children will be eligible for Medicaid, housing, and daycare subsidies, and food stamps. Second, it says, even when cohabiting couples do marry, according to a Penn State study, they suffer a higher divorce rate than couples who don't live together first on average each divorce involves one child and like the never married mother the divorced mom is often eligible for many government benefits according to the Heritage Foundation McManus writes 13 million single parents with children cost taxpayers twenty thousand dollars each or two hundred and sixty billion dollars just in the year 2004. Wow. Yeah. The total probably comes to about 300 billion today, McManus says, and that's just the beginning. A child born out of wedlock is seven times more likely to drop out of school, become a teen parent, and end up in prison. They are 33 times more likely to be seriously abused. So we've all heard the high rates of STDs, that affect teenagers and those also cost billions to to treat so it continues these figures tell us we need to do more to bring down the illegitimacy rate starting with giving teenage girls the tools they need to say no to premarital sex we must also keep fathers accountable for the children they help bring into the world and we must preserve traditional marriage Because redefining marriage to mean nothing more than a contract between two or more people of any gender would further undo the institution of marriage with all resulting costs thereafter.
0: Which is what we are seeing now.
1: Exactly. It continues, Mike McManus, who also is the founder of Marriage Savers, has a few more ideas. States ought to create a marriage commissions to encourage marriage over cohabitation state welfare offices he says ought to provide information on the value of marriage in reducing poverty and increasing wealth happiness and longer lives and we ought to require public schools and publicly funded family planning clinics to teach kids about the long-term benefits of rearing children within wedlock over cohabitation if we did this we could save hundreds of millions of dollars McManus writes. And then Chuck Colson goes on to say, well, he's correct. I wish political candidates were brave enough to take on this issue, but they won't. Sex is considered the one great sacred right in our post-Christian culture, but Hmm. the evidence reveals what happens when we take it out of the God-given context of traditional marriage. Poverty, disease, misery, and yes, higher taxes for all of us. Wow. So that's our, one of our news items from Breakpoint.org. Now, Kirk, you said you've got something?
0: Yes, you. They, interesting. I have another Penn State study here that I just heard about today. Uh, they recently did a study among 900 public high school biology teachers, uh, asking them about their feelings about teaching evolution in the uh, public high school. I was really surprised when I heard these numbers. Uh, I honestly didn't think they were this high. It says that the results of the study showed that 60% of these biology teachers are uncomfortable teaching evolution. 27% are comfortable with it. And get this, 13% of them said that they already teach creationism.
1: Wow. That's amazing. I would not have expected those numbers.
0: No, I wouldn't either.
1: Now, did it go into saying, like, why are the instructors uncomfortable teaching evolution? Uh,
0: It didn't go into great detail, but it just kind of lumped all the teachers together that had some kind of a problem with teaching it, but it didn't specify what the individual problems were.
1: Okay, so that's interesting. It could either be that they don't feel... That they have enough background to be able to teach clearly, or maybe they think it's a political hot issue and so they don't want to get involved,
0: or maybe they don't think the evidence really supports it, or that's, they don't know enough about it to right. you know take a position one way or another. Could be all of those things.
1: That's that's another possibility. And then sixty percent the of that are them teaching creationism is that 13%? intelligent design, or is that? You know more.
0: I, Well, I take that to, um, to be actually one step further than intelligent design, because creationism usually involves uh, belief in the biblical God as the creator, whereas right. intelligent design doesn't specify generally who the designer is.
1: Right. So but the un- if 13% the
0: problem- of them are teaching creationism, then I assume that that means they're teaching that the God of the Bible created everything.
1: Well, I wouldn't assume that because some of the critics try to lump intelligent design into the creationist camp. So it may be that they're just teaching a very non-specific intelligent design type of just what the science is actually showing and not really, you know, quote-unquote biblical creationism
0: could be but that's one of the things that surprised me that was that they didn't specify in the study that they were teaching intelligent design it says they were teaching right. creationism
1: right right yeah you'd have to look really at the what they what they define as creationism right so but you know this reminds me of a study that was done quite some time ago by Eugenie Scott's organization on science education where when one of the things they did when they first began gosh this was maybe 20 years ago or 25 years ago was they commissioned a study where they looked at what do kids know about evolution and what do they believe about evolution based on what they know and what the finding was is that the more a student knows about evolution, the less they believe it's true?
0: Well, that's interesting.
1: Yep. And it led them to, if you remember about that time, about 20, 25 years ago, there was this big push to define evolution as truth, as pure truth,
0: as a fact, as a as scientific a fact. fact. Right.
1: Yes, and that was their answer. They realized that it didn't help them to actually teach about evolution, because kids were smart enough to see the flaws, and then they didn't believe it. Right. So, from our position, as Christians, we want biology teachers to be teaching evolution.
0: Yeah, with we numbers like, like that— to
1: Right. We'd like them to teach both sides, the evidence for and the evidence against. Right. And not just present it as if it's absolutely a proved fact. Right. Unless they're talking about microevolution, which we agree is a proved fact.
0: Right. Change within species, we don't have any problem with that. Correct. When you start talking about one species changing into another, that's where the disagreements come in.
1: And that even depends on what your definition of species is. Because for some, a species is just a different color of plumage.
0: Right. You can even play around with the word species and really make it complicated.
1: So so if you've got a bird that's got a different color plumage and you're going to name it as a different species, well, then of course microevolution can create a new species. Because (laughs) all it's done is change the color of the feathers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's another item that came from Breakpoint that I thought was important to discuss. It's about eugenics and a couple of books that have been written recently on the topic. And why this is important is because on this show, we caution people to be careful about science and new things that they're promoting, things like global warming, because. For one thing, you shouldn't just automatically accept whatever an authority figure says. Right. And that's one of the things that we'll get into further when we get into the topic of today and talk about critical thinking skills.
0: Because they can
1: make mistakes, too, just like the rest of us. Exactly. And they're susceptible to corruption. They're susceptible to politicization. Right. And. And even the people who are reporting to you what the scientists supposedly say, those people can also interfere with the message and make you not understand what's going on. Sure. So, so on eugenics, you know, we typically think that, well, this just involved the Nazis, but in reality, this was widespread in America. And Chuck Colson brings that out. This was the leading science of the day in America, and all the major universities were promoting it and spreading the concept. So he says in his article, Protestant Judge Lothar Kreisig and Catholic Bishop Clemens von Galen courageously resisted the Nazis' war on the disabled. Sadly, that war still rages today, and America has been on the front lines for nearly a century. The story is told in two indispensable books, War Against the Weak by Edwin Black and Better for All the World by Harry Brunius. Both Black and Brunius tell us the all-but-forgotten story of how the United States tried to stop what Theodore Roosevelt called the wrong type, that's quote, the wrong type, from perpetuating themselves. Hmm. Wow. The idea that we can manage who is born and who isn't is called eugenics. It was the creation of an Englishman, Francis Galton, Charles Darwin's cousin, but it didn't really take off until it reached America. And whereas Galton's goal was to persuade the, quote, right type of people to have more children, his American disciples were more concerned with reducing births among the Wrong type. Wow. The, the weapon of choice is what a colleague of mine has called apple pie eugenics, was forced sterilization. Between 1907 and 1927, quote, the United States shockingly became the pioneer in state-sanctioned programs to rid society of the unfit, close quote. Wow. Yeah. And
0: That's and shocking.
1: It is. Listen to this. Colson says, 30 states enacted forced sterilization laws. Man. He says, it didn't take much to be considered unfit. New York actually contemplated prohibiting marriage between people who wore glasses and others who didn't. Wow. Is that incredible? How Oof. about that? Why do you never hear this?
0: Ooh, that's incredible.
1: Uh, he goes on, apple pie eugenics reached its peak in the 1927 Supreme Court case Buck versus Bell. The famous Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, upholding Virginia's decision to sterilize Carrie Buck, said, quote, it is better for all the world if society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their Kind. Close quote. He then concluded infamously with the words, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough. (laughs) Then Colson goes on, it didn't matter that neither Buck nor her mother were imbeciles or that the quote unquote science behind eugenics was quackery. What mattered was that it offered the chance to remake society, in other words, to play God. As Brunius and Black chronicle, what was going on in America was closely followed abroad. Countries such as Canada, Sweden, and yes, Germany, used American laws as models for their own statutes. And American eugenicists actually offered both technical and moral support to the Third Reich's program. While Nazi crimes and atrocities exposed the horror of eugenics, the idea of playing God, and the war on the weak it entails has never gone away. Wow.
0: I've never Isn't that heard: incredible? Any, I've never heard any of this before.
1: Yep, and you, and you probably won't because it is too critical of the scientific establishment okay. to make much headway in today's journalistic uh, areas. Right.
0: Phew. That's scary stuff.
1: It is. It is. And the so, scariest
0: thing is, who who has the right to decide who's fit and who's unfit?
1: Some board of scientists.
0: Jeez, so, according to the, those standards, I should never have gotten married, because I had glasses in high school. And I'm my wife you. has glasses. <laughs> we should yep. have gotten married.
1: Yep. <laughs> That's right. Incredible. All right, well, let's, you know, we've been getting a lot of emails, and I've been a little slow in responding to some of them, so I thought I'd spend a little time responding to some of these emails. But if you are just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks.
0: And I'm Kirk Hastings.
1: Well, Kirk, this first email is from somebody by the name of Park. We'll just give their first name. Now, this is a really long email. This person sent four pages, and that really bogged me down for a while. I just really didn't want to answer. It was just so long. (laughs) So I finally got around to answering it. Of course, I'm not going to read all of this because it would bore the audience to tears. Some of it is very specific to his actual ideas about Atheism versus Christianity, and probably wouldn't really interest a lot of the, audi- the audience. But there were a couple of issues that I thought were kind of general enough in nature that other people would be interested. Okay. So what he says is, hello, I caught Irreligiosophy's podcast encapsulating the debate that, you, that they had with you. So I decided to check some facts and pass along some minor errors that I found in your... And then my thing is cut off here, but I think he said it was a one-sided analysis. Yes. So, he says, the first real problem that you come across in your show is the continued assertion that atheists need to prove their rejection of theistic claims. Okay, now I insert right there, I, I put a stop right there, because for one thing we assert that atheists need to provide evidence. We don't say atheists need to prove because proof takes a lot. A lot of times you make a decision just based on probabilities. And so if the evidence is 51% in favor and 49% against, then you ought to choose in favor until the evidence switches. Right. So we do say that they need to provide evidence for their claims, then I say, if you are a naturalist and Chuck and Layton claim that they are, then they should offer evidence that their claim is true.
0: Sure, and their claim is that God does not exist.
1: Exactly. If you try to pin them down, though, they say, no, they don't claim that. But then if you ask them, are they naturalists, they say, yes, they are. And naturalism is the belief that God does not exist.
0: Yeah, if, so if they're the, just trying to prove their rejection of theistic ideas, then that that makes their ideas simply defensive in nature.
1: Exactly, and that was the, one of the points that I was trying to make during the debate. Or we shouldn't really call it a debate; it was really a dialogue. Yeah. Because it was nothing sure. formal about it. There weren't time limits or anything. Right.
0: But yeah, it, you know, it, it seems to me if I was an atheist, then you know, my contention would be okay, God does not exist, and all of my other viewpoints are based on that idea. Therefore, I wouldn't consider it um, strange if somebody, you know, came up to me and said, "Okay, what's your evidence Where's that God it? doesn't exist? Give me the, right. you know, tell me why you believe that."
1: Exactly. Well, there is a good reason, and maybe we'll get into that. There is a reason why, tactically, they don't want to do that. And I think, actually, a different emailer mentions that tactic, so we'll save that for that part. But Park goes on to say, please stop insisting this, as it only lowers the level of discussion. In debate, I know of no atheist that will positively assert that there is not God. Ooh. My answer, of of course, is, and the reason is because they know that that would be irrational. I've
0: read a lot of uh, arguments that assert that.
1: Well, the reason it's irrational is based on the idea that you can never know whether a universal negative is true or not. So if you claim to assert a universal negative... You're doing something that you can never know, and so that is essentially irrational to do that. Right, and that's why sophisticated atheists recognize that they can't go around saying, "I know God doesn't exist," and here's why, because by definition it's irrational, and they get hammered by that, and so then they stop saying that. Right.
0: Yeah. So well, that's, you, you know, it makes sense that you would have to know everything in order to be able to assert that.
1: Exactly right. That's why. That's why it's irrational. It's it's to much it.
0: it's much uh, it makes much more sense to me to to be an agnostic and say, well, I don't know.
1: Right, and so that's why many atheists will claim that they are agnostics, when in reality they act and behave as if they are actual atheists. Right. So part goes on. It is the Christians that positively assert there is a God and therefore must provide proof. And so I answer, we do provide evidence to support our claims.
0: Presto, that's what this radio show is all
1: about. Exactly right. (laughs) He goes on, to deny this is to to deny the modern legal system and downright common sense. If someone walks up to you on the street and makes an extraordinary claim, you would not believe it until it was proven to you. The same concept applies here. Or, as to quote Christopher Hitchens... Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I can agree so, with that. Uh, yeah, I don't actually agree with that. Really? I th- I think that all claims require sufficient evidence. Well, so, it's a
0: little tricky, too, to define what's an extraordinary claim it, and what isn't.
1: Precisely, because that's just a matter of if opinion. If I don't
0: believe it, it's an extraordinary claim.
1: That's right. That's right. <laughs> so what you need is... Enough evidence to believe it. So, my response was, by your own logic, the extraordinary claim that there is no God requires extraordinary evidence.
0: Right, because Such most people cl- believe there is one.
1: That's right. That's right, yeah. So, so if most people, and for most of world history, have believed in a God, then it is very extraordinary to claim that you know that there isn't a God.
0: So I would say that.
1: You, that requires extraordinary evidence. Sure. Further, it goes against all the extraordinary amount of evidence that God does exist, which we highlight on this show. Right. So I, say, I said in the response, I wanted to have Chuck and Layton point out themselves that they do not claim God does not exist, and that their whole approach rests on trying to defeat the many evidences that God does exist. And I succeeded in doing that. So that's his first paragraph. Let's see. He goes on to say, this is like a page later, When Chuck and Layton state that they don't know if God exists, you must keep in mind that they are on your show for a debate. The format of a debate requires that a person who asserts a positive, in their case it would have been that God does not exist, has to provide evidence for that assertion. It is tactical, for if many atheists were not sure that God did not exist, they would not be active in the community. Okay, so you see what he's saying now? He just undermined everything he said in the first paragraph. Uh-huh. He's just saying that, okay, it was really only a, t- a tactical m- maneuver. So I responded that, That completely undermines your position in the first paragraph. Putting both paragraphs together would mean that even though they have no evidence that God does not exist, they still believe it, an irrational view. In addition, the supposed absence of evidence for God would not be itself evidence for the absence of God. Okay, so in other words, if the atheists succeed in shooting down every single evidence that we might present for God— that still doesn't prove that God doesn't exist. Right. So their whole approach to only defeat the evidence for God is doomed to failure anyways, because even if they did that, there still wouldn't be any reason for not believing in God.
0: If I understand this correctly, they would still have to give me positive evidence that God does not exist, even after knocking all our evidence down. Is that right?
1: Yep, that's correct. Okay. That's correct.
0: And that's pretty hard evidence to come up with, I would say.
1: Um, Well, you know, I think actually there's uh, quite a bit of things that you could say would be evidence against the existence of God. For one thing, the entire evolutionary project is an attempt to show that God did not create the world. So if you can show that God doesn't act, then that's partly evidence to show that he doesn't exist. Since but isn't that even kind of world, a
0: weak? not that kind of a weak argument? Even if you prove that he did not create the world, that still doesn't prove that he doesn't exist. It just proves that he didn't create the world. It's is that right?
1: It's true. Yeah, it's true. It would be it would be weak evidence. Right. It's kind of like um, saying, "How do we know that fairies don't exist?" Okay, well, one of the ways that we know that fairies don't exist is because they don't do anything. We don't see their action in the world. Right. And so you could argue the same way about God. So, in a sense, the whole Darwinistic attempt to show that life could come about and all the species come about without the intervention of a creator is an attempt to show that there is no such creator. So... You know, you have to give them, if that's that's their attempt, it might be weak evidence, but at least it is some evidence.
0: And I have heard some evolutionists admit that, okay, even if we can show that God didn't create the universe, that still doesn't necessarily prove that he's he's not out there somewhere. It just proves that he didn't create everything that we see.
1: Yeah, it would leave you with some kind of a theistic evolutionary position.
0: Right. Yeah, and a lot so. of people hold that position. Right. It's kind of a halfway in between. <laughs>
1: You're right, and, and again, uh, another possible evidence against God would be the argument for evil. You know, that's been very much a centerpiece in the arguments by atheists against theism. Right. So again, I think it's bad evidence, but that is could definitely be claimed to be evidence.
0: Even though the Bible does deal with that idea.
1: Sure. Oh, there's strong answers against the argument, but... And, you know,
0: you could also say, well, since I can't see God, that means he doesn't exist. And really, I think if if a lot of people were honest, I think they would would realize that that's really what they're basing their belief on, is because I can't see him and touch him, he must not exist.
1: And many atheists in past times have used that. I don't see God, I don't hear God, you know. What was it that the cosmonaut said when he... Was in outer space. Right. I looked around and didn't, didn't see God.
0: Yeah, and He wasn't here. Therefore, I guess He doesn't exist. Right? Well, maybe you're just not out far enough.
1: Right? <laughs> yeah. Step out of the. That was what that was. That was the response somebody <laughs> gave. Yeah. Step out of the cockpit and you'll meet God.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's one way to do it. That's right.
1: All right. Let's see. So let's continue with Parks' email to us. His next paragraph, he says. It is, however, interesting how you continually deflect responsibility for your claims of proof for God, to which I interjected, please listen to our podcasts, where we go over even more evidence for the existence of God than we did during the dialogue with Chuck and Leighton. Sure. But then he says, the assertion is made quite regularly that there should be proof of God's in existence, if that is the case. That, however, is a fallacious, because you cannot disprove the existence of something that does not exist. Okay, now a lot of atheists believe this, so that's why I want to continue reading this part of his email. Although that argument lends itself to this. I would like you to disprove that there is a pink space elephant that (laughs) orbits Neptune singing show tunes, and grants wishes. If you right. That's a good example. I like right, that. Right, right. He's being funny. If you can disprove that, I would be happy to hear it. However, the simple fact is that claim is on par with the claim that theists make and equally impossible to disprove. It actually, it's actually somewhat ironic, he says, for the, Purposeful, ridiculous example I gave would be possible to disprove with the advent of sufficient space travel, whereas the confines of the God hypothesis lie outside of the physical universe. Then, in parentheses, he says, an equivocation to say, quote, somewhere that you can't disprove, so ha. All
0: right. Well, why couldn't I disapprove this pink space elephant with a simple telescope? I, wouldn't, yeah, need to tra- I, would, I wouldn't need to travel to Neptune to find out he, he's not there I could look through a good telescope and find out he's not there
1: <laughs> yep yes you definitely could but I think he's, he's just trying to say if you push that pink elephant out far enough where the telescopes can't see it
0: okay. I got then
1: you. you don't know right. uh, whether it's there or not
0: you can't disprove so, that he's in another galaxy or something
1: <laughs> right, exactly gotcha that's his argument. Right. He continues, The irony is such that an obviously absurd and nonsensical claim is actually easier on principle basis to disprove than your own. This irony holds to the idea that if your postulation of God should be claimed legitimate due to the impossibility of positively asserting its non-existence, it gives credibility to any idea That lies within the same confines. Not only in your mind is it proof of God, but proof of many gods, since they too cannot be disproved. Okay. All right, so here's what I. You got another
0: email on that same idea about Zeus, didn't you?
1: (laughs) That's right, and that's why I thought this was important enough, because a lot of atheists make this mistake. So here's what I said take a step back and think what it is you are trying to argue. You are saying that even though there is no evidence that God does not exist, you still believe it. Think about this. If you have no evidence and the other side does, you are probably wrong. But to deal with the specifics of your argument, people, in fact, disprove the existence of things that do not exist all the time. Sure. Now, remember he said that it was impossible to disprove the existence of something that doesn't exist? Right. Well, of course, that's not true. For example, when a coroner proves natural causes in a death, he automatically disproves the existence of a murderer. Right. Right? He's disproved it, that the murderer does not exist. So he has disproved something that does not exist.
0: That's implied in the proof that he has that it was a natural death.
1: Exactly. Or I could say, well, there's no coffee in my coffee, coffee cup, and I can prove it here, take a look, here's my coffee cup, right? Right. So we have plenty of evidence to believe that elephants cannot survive in space, that no one has launched one into space, and that elephants do not grant wishes or sing. (laughs) So finally... (laughs) Yes,
0: I'd say the evidence is quite good for that.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So there actually is good evidence not to believe it. Right. So, and, and then I mentioned finally the elephant is a false Analogy, and we'll get more in-depth into the fal- what a false analogy is when we get into the topic today. Right. Since it is nothing like the God who made space, made elephants, made music, and even made your brain with which you are imagining the elephant. <laughs> right. So, so there are nothing like each other. Right. So it's a false analogy. Right. So even though it could be hard to disprove some things like does a teapot exist in a distant galaxy? Okay, it might be hard to to disprove that. Sure. A creator would not be one of those things. Right.
0: Gotcha. (laughs) I still like the idea of a pink space elephant, though. I think that might make a a good TV series or something. We could really (laughs) make something out of that.
1: (laughs) All right, let's see. He mentions another paragraph. He goes to another topic. He says, Your case that deaths associated with atheistic regimes, and this is where I think we mentioned that in the 20th century, about 170 million people were murdered by 52 atheists through the use of government power. Wow. And so he says... In an attempt to show how bad atheists can be, fails to acknowledge how many of the governments killed those people in the name of atheism. None. Yes, communism, in principle, is atheistic. That allows for uniformity, and get this quote, he says, and helps to quell dissension. Mm -hmm. Wow. How do you think they quell dissension?
0: By, by slaughtering <laughs>
1: by Yeah, slaughtering that'll do it. People, yeah. <laughs> that'll do and it then, every time. Yeah. He says, help, so let me back up and read that sentence again. That, allow, that allows for uniformity and helps quell dissension. It is <laughs> a function of the government, not a foundation of that government, meaning atheism. Uh, and then he okay. brings up the example Hitler... Hitler was an atheist is a common claim, yet the belt buckle of every SS officer read, Gott mit uns, which translates directly to God with us. So if Hitler really was an atheist, he had a funny way of showing it, after invoking his name several times in speeches and rallies by surrounding himself with God and biblical references. All right, so... This is how I answer this claim. Whether in the name of or not, it still remains that atheistic ideas were the ultimate cause of hundreds of millions of murders. The view that there is no ultimate right and wrong, there is no God who punishes murderers, human beings are only animals, life has no ultimate meaning, people create their own proximate meaning and morals, life evolved by chance, etc., lead unfailingly to these mass killings. Nietzsche even predicted this would be the result of the atheism of the 20th century, and he was a 19th century philosopher. Yep. And Hitler followed Nietzsche's ideas and subverted the church and used it for his purposes. Yep. So, I don't think the point of, well, they didn't do it in the name of atheism really matters. Another example that maybe I should have written to him also was, for instance, what about murders done in the name of racial intolerance? Was that done in the name of racial intolerance? No, No. but it was done because of racial intolerance. Right. So, it doesn't really matter what was done in the name of or not
0: sure you would admit that you're racially intolerant when you're killing people for that you would make up some other excuse but you know
1: we know why right okay so let's see let's see if we've got time let's try well we might make this have to make this show just a show about emails from our listeners but it looks like it's I turning don't out li- that way <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really want to put any of these off, and we are going over some very important issues. Sure. So these are really good emails, and they do talk about important things. Uh-huh. We got another email from our friend U.C from Scandinavia, and he says, he brings up three different topics that I thought were important, so let's go over those. He talks about the problem of evil and morals. So he says, you said something like, quote, God gave us perfect world, but we chose otherwise, close quote. Mm -hmm. You mean forbidden fruit or did I miss something? Here is the big problem. I didn't eat forbidden fruit. I didn't make choice. I would have chosen perfect world, of course, Who wouldn't if it's literally perfect? But I still got punished, and I feel it's wrong. Why? Do I know it is wrong because God admitted that he did bad against us, or is knowledge of right and wrong from evolution? Okay, good question. And UC, I have to point out for our listeners that UC is from Scandinavia, and he admits that his English isn't all that good, so I'm not poking fun at him. I'm just reading it as he's written it and actually trying to correct a little bit of the English as I go along. Right. So there's two parts to that. There's about the problem of evil and then there's the question about morals. So let me answer the problem of evil part first. And what I write to you see is that maybe an analogy would help. Let's say that your grandfather was given a perfect car. One that would not wear out or break down. Now, the manufacturer who gave him that car told him adamantly not to put water in the gas tank. If you do, it will break down. Now, Kirk, did you pick up on that I used the word adamantly? Yes. From Adam. Okay. Just a a little side joke there. A little pun there. Exactly. (laughs) So he said, don't put water in the tank. If you do, it will break down. So I continue, now your grandfather did put water in the gas tank anyway, and now there are all kinds of problems. It still runs, so he gave it to your father, who also did not follow the manuals, the owner's manual, and then he gave it to you. Now you have this car to drive, and it's very unpredictable and frequently needs repairs. Uh Okay, so that's the situation. Now look back at your paragraph, the question that you asked. You are asking, I didn't put water in the gas tank. Why is the manufacturer punishing me? Okay, Very so good. the problem <laughs> is not what the manufacturer is doing to you. Right. The problem is what your grandfather did to the car. Right. Now, it's true you're not responsible for that. Right. But you are responsible for the parts of the owner's manual that you knew you should have followed, but you didn't. Right. And then I add that the good news is that God has promised to give us a new perfect car, a new life, and a new universe if we accept his amnesty program. Right. So the good news is you are off the hook if you accept Christ.
0: Okay. Sounds good to me.
1: All right. So let's get into the moral side of the argument then because you did talk about morals in that question regarding the evolution of morals i say if you believe that morals developed over time okay right that's the position by evolutionists right are you saying that you are more evolved than others maybe people in africa who are slaughtering each other does that make you you see more highly morally evolved because you don't murder yeah,
0: the if first people, thing that struck me when you said that was, if, if morals evolved, why are we not, as a race, following the, these moral rules better than we are?
1: Exactly. <laughs> if they've point. evolved
0: so far, how come we're not paying more attention to them?
1: <laughs> and why would people suddenly revert back to uh, caveman or pre-caveman style behavior?
0: Right. Which right? we see every day in the newspaper.
1: Right. Let's see where where I left off. If people are evolved, then they have no intrinsic or ultimate value in and of themselves. Therefore, any harm that you cause them is not ultimately or intrinsically evil. In the evolutionary worldview, there is no such thing as real, ultimate good and evil, and therefore no real morals just as Nietzsche pointed out. Objective morals require an objective moral law, which requires a moral law giver. Right. Because every moral statement is about a person or given by a person. So that's just the nature of moral laws. There's an oughtness about them that people ought not to behave in a certain way. and, And the reason you... Feel that oughtness. Hey, I shouldn't do that. Why shouldn't I do that? Because I'm breaking someone's moral law, someone above me. Right. So then let's see. UC brought up the free will argument, and this is brought up commonly by atheists, so we should cover this item. He said, Free will. Again, you picked an easy target. Totally obsolete and artificially created position to be against free will. Why are you keep on doing this? In short, absence of free will doesn't mean that you know you don't have free will or that you cannot do something seemingly, seemingly get that, seemingly free decisions. If you really want to challenge your views, then you really have to listen what we are talking about. There is no point to argue against position we don't have. Which, I agree, there's no point arguing against a position that they don't have. But, I am arguing against their real position. So, I know that atheists, though they claim that there is no such thing as free will, that they believe that there is essentially a your head's being faked out and that you think you have free will and so you act in a way that is as if you had free will. (laughs) So I understand that. That's what my argument is against. Right. So here's what I write to you, see. I say, look, it's not me who is against free will. I believe in free will just as 99% of people do for the simple reason that it is personally testable and verifiable. I mean, I can test right now whether I have free will just by deciding whether or not I'm going to raise my arm. If I want to raise my arm, I will raise my arm. So the fact that because naturalism posits that there is no such thing as free will and that what you experience as free will is just an illusion and, uh, and can be so easily refuted doesn't count against me. It counts against naturalism. So, because remember, he said, oh, this is an easy target. Well, the only reason it's easy is because it's easy to defeat. I, I do understand the naturalistic view on this. What I am trying to point out is the ridiculous consequences of that view, mm-hmm. including the implication that your belief that you do not have true free will does not come from rational reflection any more than a headache does. <laughs> right it's just what your brain tells you so if your brain tells you you have free will you think you have free will but really you don't it's just like a headache you just have to follow what your neurons tell you
0: i love these kind of arguments where they say well you think you have free will but you really don't and the the other similar argument well everything looks designed but it's really not
1: right right <laughs> Okay, the last point he brings up is cosmology. He says, you basically rejected Hawking's theory because you feel that there is always something pre-existing universe or conditions that lead to existence of universe. You question that, but you can't question with same reasons God has always existed. Is your assumption without any evidence for it? Or tell me, how do you know God has always existed? Because I say so? I feel so? Or that is our definition of God? Are not answers or evidence for it? Okay, Okay, so, you know, I hope it's clear exactly what he's saying. The question that he's asking here is if we're going to say that the universe needed to be created, okay, because it's contingent, then how can you get away with saying that God didn't need to be created? Okay, so that's, I understand his question and it's a valid point. Right. If I (laughs) did leave that out, if I left out that information, then I'm going to provide it now. Okay. So what I wrote to UC was, okay, I I think I understand why this is not clear to you. The argument I made refers back to an unstated argument about existence. So here's the unstated argument that I assumed that most people knew. Everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. Okay, so everything that, it, that exists needs some kind of explanation. Does that make sense? Sure. So one way of explaining things is that it's caused by something else. Right. And this was Aristotle's view about pri- the prime cause or the prime mover. Right. The problem that Aristotle pointed out is that you can't go back in an infinite regression because it's irrational you have to get to some point some cause that is itself uncaused right so the other option for something that exists is that it is not contingent it is it exists because it's self-existent or it exists because of the necessity of its own nature right. part of its nature is that it is something that exists right so and as a possible example of this, a lot of mathematicians and philosophers have said that numbers is an example of something that exists without being caused. And one of the ways they argue this is that in any imaginable world, okay, if you think of some kind of an imaginable world, would there be numbers in that world? Well, well it would seems so. like... Yeah it seems like there would have to be sure right so that's an example of something that exists by the necessity of its own nature and so you so then i continue to use so you see there are two possibilities that can explain why things exist the universe is explained by an external cause now then you say explain god's external cause but god's existence is explained in the necessity of his own nature he is self Existent, And then I say, once again, I hope that helps. And thanks for the thoughtful comments and questions from UCN Scandinavia. Well, I guess, Kirk, we will have to call a halt to the show there. And we will continue next week with our discussion about uh, logical fallacies and critical thinking and the study that showed that college kids... uh, really having a problem in this area, so maybe we can help out some of those kids. Okay. So please join us again next week, and always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.
0: That was